Well, good morning to everybody. Here we are in uh, Middle Tennessee, a little overcast outside today, but a nice day, beautiful day, good temperature. I want to say hello to all of you who are in other parts of the world watching by the internet. We hope you are safe, sound, and happy in the Lord. We're going to begin our worship today. Brother Joshua Walt, who normally uh, leads the singing, is not here. So we will begin, if I can pick up that piece of paper. Wow. That's why we have computers today, I guess, huh? If you'll turn in your hymnals, or you may, for those of you here, look up on the screen, 103. 103, stand together with me. One day when heaven was filled with his praises. One day when heaven was filled with his praises One day when sin was as black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin Dwelt among men, my example is he Living he loved me, dying he saved me Buried he carried my sins fall away, rising he justified, really forever, one day he's coming, oh glorious day, one day they lay him up Calvary's mountain, one day they nailed him to die on the tree, suffering My sins, my redemptor is he. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Dying. My sins fall away. Rising, he justified. Freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. One day they left. Alone in the dark, one day he rested from his suffering free. Angels came down or his tomb to keep it. Hope of the hopeless, my Savior is he. Living, he loved me, dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death, he is conquered. Now is ascended, my Lord, Dying, he saved me, buried, he carried my sin far away. Rising, he justified, really forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day. Oh, 
one day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the sky with his glory will shine. A wonderful day, my beloved one, bring glorious Savior. This Jesus is mine. Living he loved me, dying he saved. You may be seated. Elder Joe Turner is going to come and lead us in the reading of Scripture and in prayer. Good morning. I'd like to read a passage. Actually, it's one of the Psalms. Psalm 84. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts! My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Yea, the sparrow hath found an house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are they who dwell in thy house. They will be still praising thee, Silah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them, who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well, the rain also fills the pools. They go from strength to strength, every one of them in Zion appears before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Silah. Behold our God, or O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in thee. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the grace and mercy that you have bestowed upon us. How that all that you have done in your dying, in your resurrection, in your everlasting life, that it is for our benefit that you have secured our redemption, you have gained forgiveness of our sins, and have made us acceptable in the beloved before a holy God. As we come today into this house, we pray that indeed it would be the delight of our hearts to assemble here and to sing praises of worship to our God. And we ask that you meet with us, that you would pour out your spirit upon us in this place. Anoint our pastor, we pray that he would be given the wisdom, the words, the boldness to proclaim unto us the word, the message that you've laid upon his heart. And for each one that you have drawn into this place, we ask that you would give us a heart that has been prepared to receive that word, that it might accomplish your purpose. And we'll thank you for these blessings as we ask them now in Christ's name. Amen.
We have, I think, a request for this next one. It's page 344. And I think this, uh, is this the request that Phoebe requested, our friend Phoebe, who uh, I don't know whether, Phoebe, you are in New York now or California. She's been going in between the two. But she requested, I must tell Jesus. So let's sing that, 344. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, He kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for His own. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, I cannot Some announcements and prayer requests by Brother Brother Todd Horton. Good morning. I'd like to add my welcome to that of the pastors and say we're glad to have all of you here today. And those of you who are watching via the internet, uh, Nathan Smith is feeling much better. He's still at home uh, right now, recovering from pneumonia, but he is improving greatly, and so we want to continue to remember him before the Lord. His brother, Howie Smith, injured his ankle this past week in his own light duty in the military, but he is recovering. We 
continue ask prayer for Howie. We want to continue to remember Betty and Charlie Haynes. I don't see them here again this morning. I don't know if anyone has talked to them or not, but they've been really sick. We want to lift them up before the Lord. Also, Becky Smith's mom, Ruth, uh, was scheduled to have a lung scan, but that did not occur. They did meet with video conference with the surgeon, and they are soon to schedule, hopefully, surgery for her to remove her colon cancer. So let's be in prayer for Miss Ruth. Also, Larry's aunt, Nina, has been doing well, uh, and she's not been doing well, and she's in a rehab facility. Let's remember her. <clears throat> Pat Jacob Jacobs is having lower extremity uh, vascular surgery sometime in November. I think we're still waiting for that to be scheduled. Let's remember her. I don't see Shirley Murphy here today. She's been having some mobility issues of late. Let's remember her. Let's continue to remember Carolyn Batt. Also remember Calvin and Julie LaPetri. And Cheryl Cawthorn's 10-year-old niece, Clara Edwards, who is undergoing chemotherapy treatment. We also want to pray for our brother Wally Haddon and his wife Mary as she continues to minister his needs while he lives in an assisted living facility. And we also want to, of course, remember Marie Dalton. I don't see her this morning. Also, Gladys Alquist and her son and Paul Osborne as he continues to care for his wife, Diane. <clears throat> and reminder that uh, if you want to support the ministry of Grace Church here, you can put your tithes and offerings in the box that's located in the round table in the foyer. <clears throat> and we want to remind you that we will not have fellowship dinner in November. Instead, we are resuming the annual chili cook-off that the Sassers throw each year. That will be at their River House, Duck River House, which is on Riverview Road directly behind Henry Horton State Park. So that will be in lieu of fellowship dinner on Sunday, November the 6th at 3 p.m. And they encourage you to bring your favorite chili as well as dessert and all the drinks and other things will be provided for you. Now, some of you were here last week and you heard Lynn try to bias the judging as she often does, claiming herself basically to be the victor every year. And we understood that was fake news because we, we heard from others who said they have also won. <clears throat> but we're going to solve that this year. We're not going to let Lynn pick the judges this year. So it is going to be a fair competition. We encourage you to join us. It's a great time. Hi, Lynn. Welcome. <laughs> Y'all don't need to share anything that you just heard. <laughs> but uh, uh, John was elected to do a hayride. I don't know, John, are you going to be? John said he will be there, so the hayride will be on, and that's a good time for all. So please join us again, November 6, 3 p.m. at the Duck River House. You might want to eat a little something after church because it'll be a little while before we get there. But I think we're planning to start eating right at 3, shortly thereafter. Well, you eat when you're hungry. There'll be chili there, so just go up and grab you a bowl. All right, thank you. In just a moment, we're going to do a portion of a hymn. Brother Joshua Waltz, for those of you who were not here earlier, uh, is not here with us today. Uh, I don't think he's ill. I think it's something special going on. And anyway, we're, we're glad he's not ill, but he's not here. Uh, therefore, I had to lead you in singing. I want to read to you a short note from my dear brother Calvin LePetri. Most of you know Calvin. He is a deacon here in this assembly. Uh, he had a wreck sometime back and broke some bones in his legs. And he is also, of course, attending to the care of his wife, Judy. We miss both of them. And he wrote this short note, Brethren, we are still here by the grace of God. 
grateful to see the gospel still going forth from Grace Church. You are continually in our prayers, and we are confident that we are in yours. Judy seems to be doing well, considering all things. Hopefully, we can get to see you one Sunday and fellowship with you. We love you all and always will, Calvin and Judy. So let me remind you not to forget those who are missing in action, our MIAs. Drop them a card, drop them a line, send them a text. If you don't know the phone number, get in touch with me. I've got just about everybody's phone number and emails. Or you could call them. And even if you don't know them, you can call them and say, my name is so-and-so and I worship at Grace Church. And Calvin, we miss you and we miss Judy and just want you to know we're praying for you. So let them know that as well as others. Take note of those who are not with us and uh, get in touch with them. Let them know that we are thinking about them and uh, that we miss him. Now, we're going to sing one more hymn, and then we're going to be blessed with a special by Brother Keith, uh, uh, and we, uh, we're going to sing two, 228, 228, which is a grand old hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place, but it's not in a device and not in a creed, it's in Christ himself. Let's sing that. And I'll let you remain seated for this hymn. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one.
right, we're going to be blessed with a special by Brother Keith, and he's going to come, and I don't know what he's going to sing, but I guarantee you it'll be a blessing. Brother Keith. All right, good morning, everyone. So glad to be here singing uh, again for you this morning. Um, I want to sing a song that uh, was co-written by me and a friend of mine named Heather Field. And uh, we sort of work on an album um, on the fruits of the Spirit. And so this song is on the fruit goodness. And I just want to read, uh, I remember hearing... Um, Brother Joe read the scripture this morning, and uh, he said something about that the, the Lord withholds no good thing from those uh, who walk uprightly, and how true that is, how the Lord is so good to us. And it says in Psalm 107, uh, verse 21, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Softly comes upon the heart The breath of God caressing Goodness from our Father God The Comforter, His blessing The goodness of the Savior's love The power of confessing each broken one by sin undone is righteousness redressing. So I will trust the Lord and I will praise his name. And as long as I have breath in me, I'll believe that I the goodness of God. Gently comes the holy word to offer hope and healing. Goodness through the sorrow heard with truth in love appealing for goodness stands with nail pierced hands outstretched to those unwilling eternal ways through mortal days is faithfulness revealing so I will trust the As long as I have 
without truth is worth absolutely nothing. That's what we have today. We've got a lot of folks that can sing, but they're not saying anything. I think we ought to sing what we preach. I think we ought to sing and preach what we believe. Would you stand together with me for the reading of God's Word? And we're going to read a couple of passages after we appeal to the Lord to help us. Father, I stretch my hand to you. No I know if I withdraw myself from Genesis chapter 41, and then we're going to go to Acts chapter 7 for the reading of a passage of Scripture. Genesis 41, verse 1, it came to pass 
at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed. Then we go down to verse 14 of the same chapter. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon, and he shaved himself and changed his clothing and came in unto Pharaoh. Now in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, and beginning at verse 9, read these words. The patriots were moved with envy, and they sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word and let God's people say praise the Lord. And you may be seated. Today we're going to think about the sparing of Joseph. The sparing of Joseph. Sometime back, When I intended to go on in Genesis 41, I gave you a little outline. I'm going to repeat that outline this morning. This is the way the chapter goes, generally speaking. The first eight verses tell us about the dreams of Pharaoh. Verses 9 through 13, we read about the butler's revelation. Verses 14 through 36, we read about Joseph before the Pharaoh. Verses 37 through 45, Joseph is given a new name. And then verse 45, 50, 51, and 52, we read about the family of Joseph. And finally, in verses 53 through 57, we read about Joseph, the Savior. What a God and what a Savior we have. He is the only true and living God, and He is to be worshiped, and He is to be praised. And although I have mentioned what I'm going to concentrate on this morning, I've mentioned this several times in the past. I'm going to go into a little bit more detail, and we'll get into just a little bit of theological things. But I hope it will be clear. I hope you'll have a greater appreciation for the Scriptures and for the revelation of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a result of having gone through today's study. The question is, why was Joseph spared? What is the significance of his being spared? We read from the book of Acts, and we read right here in Genesis 41, 
that he was spared from prison, but he's been spared from a lot of things. He was spared from murder by his brothers. He was spared from slavery to the Ishmaelites. He was uh, spared from a, uh, a wrong relationship with Potiphar's wife. Now he's in prison, and he is going to be delivered from prison. So I want to reintroduce to you this morning a hermeneutical principle of interpretation. Let's put the word hermeneutics up on the board. You see that word? Hermeneutics. Uh, When I first ran into that word, I, I had to remember how to spell it by making a musical group out of it. I said it was Herman and the New Ticks. Not Herman's Hermans, but Herman's and the New Ticks. Hermeneutics is a branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible. Your system of hermeneutics will determine how you interpret the Bible. Professor Cornelius Van Til, who's been gone for a long time, used to speak of all of us being born with a certain set of glasses. And through those glasses, you view the world and you you view reality as you see it, and you interpret the world and you interpret the reality that you go through. And then when you come to the Scripture, you look at the Scripture through those particular glasses. If you have on blue glasses, then everything you look at looks blue. If I say this wall over here is kind of a green color, you say, well, it looks blue to me. Everybody has a certain set of glasses. And what happens in salvation, what happens in regeneration is that the Lord miraculously changes our spiritual lens. He enables us to begin to see things as He sees them. We see things as we come into this world from a totally different perspective. And then we try to reason around those things and reason into spiritual things. But what the Lord does is He gives us a new set of glasses so that we don't see things any longer as they appear. We see them as He sees them. We begin to look at reality through spiritual lenses. It's very easy to explain the convictions that I have as opposed to many of the politicians today as opposed to the views that Washington has, as opposed to many of the lawmakers and so on. The differences between their views and my views is I'm looking at life, I'm looking at life, I'm looking at death, I'm looking at obedience and disobedience, I'm looking at all of these things through the lens of Scripture. And the crazier the world gets, you will see that more and more and more they will be discarding the views that this nation has been raised upon, which is looking at reality through the lens of Scripture. We're not saying that there's ever been a time in America when every single person in America was a Christian. Of course not. 
We, we wouldn't say that at all, but we would say this. There was a time when all men in general in America viewed things and made decisions and said, this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this is bad. This is wicked and this is righteous. They did that on the basis of the Scripture. What God said was the way they viewed things. Those were the days when you could close a deal on a handshake. Well, even in Franklin, Tennessee, in Williamson County, I've heard countless stories of people who made a bid on a house. And when they get there, they say, I'm sorry, somebody else made a higher bid. Well, is this an auction? Or when somebody makes a bid, I thought that was it. You say, okay, we'll take the bid. Well, all of these things now are turning the world upside down. So when we come to the Scripture, we have to know what hermeneutical principles we're using to understand it. Some say that Israel is the key to understanding the Bible. I know all of you have heard that, that Israel is the key. There was a good friend of mine, and he used to say, if you want to find out what's going on today, you look at the, the Bible, you look at Israel, modern Israel, and then you look at the Bible, and you see the, you see the headlines in the Bible through Israel. If you want to understand the Scripture, you look at the Scripture, you approach the Scripture through Israel. Then the other people who say, well, the church is the key to understanding. You want to approach the Scripture through the lens of the church. What did Jesus say? What did he say? I'll quote these passages to you. I'll tell you where they are, tell you where they are, because you, you, most of them, most of you know. But in John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus said to a group of Bible scholars, a group of fellows who really had their doctorate degrees and their Ph.D. degrees, and they were looked upon with reverence by the people of knowing the Bible. This is what he said to them in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures. In them, you think you have eternal life. Somewhere in the Scripture, it talks about eternal life. It talks about everlasting life. And we're reading the Scripture to find out where that life is, what that life is, how I get that life. Search the Scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Are you going to approach the Scripture and you're going to say the key to understanding the Scripture is Israel? Or are you going to say the key to understanding the Scripture is the church? Or are you going to say what Jesus said? The key to understanding the Scripture is Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the Christ. He said, these are they which testify of me. And that's why I've been saying for many, many years that the Bible is a hymn book, H-I-M. Talks about Israel, mentions the church, gives a lot of historical facts that have been verified, even gets into some scientific things. The Bible predicted so-called empty space in place, the black in space, the, the black hole, uh, the blood being vital. Did you know that for centuries people didn't know 
that blood was vital? Did you know that, Wash- that George Washington, the first president of the United States, was bled to death by physicians that thought that bleeding him would cure him of his problem? They bled him in about, about five times in one day based on what they had as knowledge in that time. Do you know that the person who first suggested when women were dying, women were having children, and they were dying. And this man suggested that there were little bitty teeny weeny things that we couldn't see with our eyes that he had begun to see through a microscope called germs. And he suggested that if the doctors would wash their hands, they wouldn't transfer those little bitty things to those women, and those women wouldn't get infected, and they wouldn't die. Did you know that they put that man in an insane asylum? And today, a doctor wouldn't touch you without washing his hands. He washes his hands. They have other things they put on the hands right here at Grace Church. When you walk in the front door, our own physician, Dr. Foster, who's retired, put some stuff back there. You can squirt it on your hands and kill those germs when you come in the door. Coronavirus was spread by close contact, shaking hands. Put your hand on a doorknob. Put your hand on a phone somebody else has used. Put your hand on a handrail going down steps. All of these things. When we approach the scripture, we want to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus said, these are they that testify of me, Jesus said that he himself is the grand theme of the scriptures. Now listen, when Jesus said that in John chapter 5, verse 39, the New Testament had not yet been written. So he's talking about Genesis chapter 1 through Malachi. The books of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, he said, I'm the theme of the entire Old Testament. We know he's the theme of the New Testament. But I'm going to show you today we can still misinterpret the New Testament because we don't draw it to him. I hope to show you that in just a minute. So our hermeneutical principle of interpretation is Jesus the Messiah, and everything to be understood as revealing him. He's the seed of the woman in Genesis. He's the Passover sacrifice of Exodus. He is the atonement of Leviticus. He is the servant of the book of Numbers. He is the law of God incarnate or come into the flesh in Deuteronomy. And we can go through every book of the Bible And see that not only is he the theme of that book, but all of the things in that book reflect him and point to him. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, another passage with which most of you are familiar, after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus joined two disciples as they walked along the road to a place called Emmaus. Emmaus was a town about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem. And these two disciples, remember now, any follower of Jesus was called a disciple. The word disciple comes from a word that means a learner. 
You are a disciple. I am a disciple. There were 12 apostles, but there were many, many, many disciples. All the apostles were disciples, but all the disciples were not apostles. So you're a disciple and I'm a disciple because we're learners and we follow him. So these two disciples were walking along a road to a place called Emmaus, as I say, about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem. They probably lived there, and they were going home after celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. And it happened to be the time when Jesus was crucified. They had been crucified. There had been a up, great uproar in Jerusalem over this man, Jesus. And, of course, you know the story in the Bible. He was arrested, and he was put to death by the Romans. While the Jewish leaders urged the crowd on, crucify him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. He said he was a king. And if you don't crucify him, then you're in revolt against the Caesar. You're in revolt against the, the head of Rome. So as they were walking, they were talking about everything that had happened in Jerusalem. They were talking about the, especially the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while they were walking along, he joined them. He just came up and joined them. People walked in those days. It's like the young man that told his dad uh, that he wanted uh, something. He wanted a whatever it was, and his dad couldn't afford it. I guess it was an automobile. And uh, uh, he said, well, you ought to be like Jesus. He said, he walked everywhere. <laughs> you ought to be like Jesus. He walked everywhere. Well, Jesus joined them as they were walking along, talking about the recent crucifixion of the Jesus of Nazareth, whom they said they had hoped he would be the Messiah. And at this point, Jesus had been dead for three days, he had been resurrected, and the New Testament has not been written. So reading, here's what it says. Luke chapter 24, verse 21, these disciples say to this man that joined them, who was Jesus, but they didn't know it, they said, we had hoped that he would be the one who would deliver Israel. And besides all that, this now is the third day since it happened. And then they told him that some women had gone up to the tomb of Jesus, but they didn't find his body. And then they told him that upon the report by the women, some of the men of their group went to the tomb, and they found it exactly as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. And at this point, the Lord Jesus interrupted them. And this is what he said, O fools, how slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory and beginning with the books written by Moses and then the writings of the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's important. It's important how you approach the scripture. Jesus said when he was going to expound something, he could expound nothing better and nothing greater than himself. He said, I am the theme of the Bible. 
And so when you go to the Bible, you try to find him. And so our approach to interpreting the Bible, our hermeneutical principle of interpretation, we express it with two words, and I've given it to the fellows upstairs. We can put one of them at a time up there, or both of them. One of them is the word Christocentric, and the other one is the word Christotelic. You see that word Christocentric? Our approach in interpreting the Bible, our hermeneutical principle of interpretation, may be expressed as Christocentric and Christotelic. Jesus, as the Christ, is the key to correctly interpreting and understanding the Scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament. He is the theme of the Bible. Now, what do I mean by Christocentric? That Christ is the key to understanding the Bible. He is the incarnate. The word incarnate means coming into the flesh, being robed in the flesh. He's the incarnate Word of God, by which we understand the written Word of God. Now, do you understand that back in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve heard the what? The voice of God walking. They heard a voice walking in the garden in the cool of the day, in the afternoon. Or maybe it was early morning. That voice of God that was walking in the garden is the one that we now call the Messiah. He was in his pre-incarnate form. He was in the form of God before he took upon him human flesh and came into the world. How did God create the world? Did he sweat and toil? No, it says he spoke it into into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. Now, that word by which he spoke it in existence, that's the second person of the Godhead. That's the one that we now call Jesus, the Messiah. The God-man. So when we say Christocentric, we mean he's the key to understanding the Bible. We mean he is the incarnate word. He's the word of God robed in the flesh by which we He is the living word by which we understand the written word. We interpret all of Scripture in the light of the full and the final revelation of God in, by, and through Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah. He is what the Scripture is all about. All right, let's look at this next word, Christotelic. Christotelic. By this word, we mean that all of the commandments and all of the promises find their fulfillment in Jesus as the Christ. Now, in the past, I've given you examples from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which are, in my opinion, quite obviously Christocentric and Christotelic. But I'd like to give you another example. Would you turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2? 1 Timothy Let's use the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> First Timothy chapter 2. 
I'll give you an example here that's often viewed either as a mystery or for some reason is grossly misunderstood. 1 Timothy 2. Let's begin reading in verse 13. Adam was first formed, then Eve. So who, who did God make first? He made the man. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. All right, it says here that Adam did what he did with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. He did it deliberately. He did it on purpose. What he did was he chose to side with his wife, Eve, rather than obey God. Because remember, Eve was the one who was deceived. Isn't that what it said? So she was deceived. It says Adam was not deceived. But who was the first one to disobey God? Well, it was the woman. I don't know where Adam was, I don't know if he was absent. I don't know if he was present and didn't speak up, but I know that the Bible gives us the record that the serpent came to Eve and said, Yea, has God said thou cannot eat, that you cannot eat of every tree of the garden? And she said, We may eat of the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he has said, We shall not eat of that, neither shall we touch it, lest you die. Of course, I have pointed out many, many, many times, God didn't say a thing about not touching it. Why would you want to touch something that he told you not to eat of? That's what people do today. They, get, they go to places they shouldn't go. They associate with folks who sit and associate that have bad habits. And then when they get in trouble, then they say, oh, God, help me. And he said, why'd you go there? He said, why did you keep company with those people? You know, the Lord wouldn't let Israel, when they came into the land of Canaan, he told them, you're going to have to get rid of all those people that are in there, because if you don't get rid of them, what they're going to do is their children are going to become friends with your children, and their children are going to teach you things for which I will have to judge your children and you for. And he told them that to start with. And they went right in there, and it started out good, but after a while, they, they, they began to spare them and let them and make leagues with them and do all of these things. And as a result of that, Israel experienced the judgment of God. So it says here that Adam was not deceived. Now, get that. It's very important. Adam had his eyes wide open. He deliberately did. God, you know, when God made Adam, if you go back and read the record in Genesis, when he made Adam, he told him before he ever made Eve about what he could not have in the Garden of Eden. He told him that. And so it was Adam's responsibility to relay that message to his wife. Okay? So she knew because she said, God said, Oh, and the devil said, oh, 
you shall not surely die. You will not die. God knows that in the days you eat, you will be like him. You'll have your eyes opened. Oh, boy, is he a liar. Young people today, some folks, your friends will tell you, oh, man, you do this, this is, it'll give you a feeling, it'll give you, it'll set you free. This morning, I'm going to watch the program tonight, every Sunday morning, there comes on a program called Sunday Morning. <laughs> and it lasts an hour and a half, and I usually tape it. And it's divided up into three or four, 15 or 20 minute segments. So this morning, among other guests, they're going to have a young man who's worth millions and millions and millions of dollars as a singer. And what did they put him on there singing? I wonder what it feels like to be free. A young black man. Well, I tell you what to do. Go over there somewhere to Africa or go over to these, uh, India or go to Pakistan. We, the, 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 they, they have nothing but criticism for the United States, but they won't leave it. They won't leave it. And my friends, the only way you can make sense of life is to view it through the lens of Scripture. And the only way you can make sense of Scripture is to view it through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he says, Adam wasn't deceived. He said the woman was deceived, and she was in the transgression. She was the first one to partake of the forbidden fruit. And then she gave it to her husband, and he took it from her, right? That's what the Bible clearly teaches. Now watch this. Here's where people misunderstand. Verse 15. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. What does that mean? What does that mean? I guarantee you that many pastors and preachers don't know what that means. Because they don't know this hermeneutical principle of interpreting the scripture through the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that a woman, because she suffers pain and giving childbirth, that she, she earns her salvation, she goes through all that pain, and so she earns it? Is that what it means? Is it, does it mean if she raises her children right and keeps them straight and on the straight and narrow and all of that, that she's going to be saved? No. How did the Messiah come into the world? He came into the world through childbearing. When it says she should be saved through childbearing, it's simply saying that even though she sinned, notwithstanding, even though she sinned against God, even though she was the first to transgress, even though she was the tool in the hands of the devil of the, to, for the fall of the human race by giving this to her husband, who with eyes wide open sided with her against God, even though she did that, yet through childbearing she's going to be saved because one day a woman's going to bear a child that's going to be the savior of sinners like Eve. That's what that means. That's what that means. The act in view is the fall of the human race and our first parents, Adam and Eve. And the argument is that though the woman was the first to sin, which is verse 14, yet the man, because he was created first, he bears the responsibility. 
And the writer here reveals that the woman was deceived, but the man was not deceived. But even though the woman was deceived and was the first to sin, he adds that she'll be saved through childbearing, which refers to the Messiah who's coming through a woman who will bear a child. She will be saved through childbearing. You can't interpret that any other way. You certainly can't say she's going to save herself by having children. You can't say that she's going to earn salvation through the pain she experiences by having children. If she is a woman of faith, that is, of faith in Christ, she shall be saved, though she bears a great responsibility in the fall of the human race. Let me show you one more. I don't want us to forget Joseph. Now, I had not forgotten him yet. <laughs> Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15 is the great chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. The whole chapter is devoted to the resurrection. If Jesus Christ did not come out of the grave, we have absolutely no reason for going on living, and we certainly don't have any hope in death. But he says in this chapter, because Christ came out of the grave, then we have the promise to all of us who believe in him that we will come out of the grave. All right, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. All right? Verse 28. When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. Now notice the 29th verse. Elks. What shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, the Roman Catholic Church has baptism for dead people by proxy. In other words, if you've got a family member or you've got a friend or you've got somebody that has passed away, you can be baptized in their place as a substitute for them. It's the same principle as what we call godparents. Some of you are probably godparents. You know what a godparent is? A godparent is someone that is called up there by a little infant that's just a few weeks old. And the priest says, do you repent for the infant? Yes. Do you believe the other godparent? Or maybe it's just one. Do you believe for the infant? Yes. You can't believe for anybody else, and you can't repent for anybody else. And the reason they do that is because an infant is not capable of believing and repenting. When the gospel says when the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, those that believe, baptize them. And then he said, teach them whatever I have commanded you to do. So what is this baptism for the dead here? The church has never practiced baptism for the dead. What he's talking about here is, if Jesus Christ did not come out of the grave, you are being baptized in the name and for the sake of a dead person. That's all he's saying. 
Is Christ alive or is he still dead? Did his disciples, as the Jews still say today, steal his body, take it away somewhere, and then tell people that he was resurrected from the grave? There is no baptism for the dead, my friend. The scripture says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. There's not going to be somebody being baptized for some person that's already left this world. But you see how you can misinterpret the scripture if you don't trace it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the significance of why the Lord spared Joseph. Now by now, you should begin to suspect that it had something to do with Christ. It has something to do with Christ. Why did the Lord spare Adam? Uh, Joseph, I'm sorry. We're going to look at Adam in just a moment. Why did the Lord spare Joseph? He spared Joseph that through him he might spare Israel, and through sparing Israel he might fulfill the promises to Abraham, and in fulfilling the promises to Abraham they eventuated into the Messiah who is the seed of Abraham. We'll look at that in just a moment, the Messiah. The reason he's sparing Joseph, as I'm going to show you in detail in just a moment, is because of his promised son, the Messiah. All right, let's quickly look at Adam. Why did the Lord spare Adam? When Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't he just wipe them off the face of the earth? You say, well, he's merciful. Yes, but the reason he spared him is because he will, through the Adamic race, through the race that will come out of Adam, he's going to send a Savior. You remember the last study I told you that behind every obvious and discovered purpose there is a secondary and secret purpose. So when we look back at the Garden of Eden, we should understand that behind the sparing of Adam there was a secondary purpose kept secret for thousands of years. And what was that? To save a multitude out of Adam's race. A multitude which no man can number out of every kindred, every tribe, every nation, every generation. This was the primary and this was the secret purpose of sparing Adam. But there was another purpose. Listen to this. 1 John 3, 8. He that continues to sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So the reason God didn't destroy Adam is because through Adam, he's going to bring his son, he's going to destroy the one that destroyed the human race, the devil. The Son of God came into this world for this very reason, to destroy the works of the devil who brought about the fall of Adam. The serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, he's going to, he was destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Genesis 3.15 to the devil. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. Her seed will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. The promised one must be a human being. He must be born of a woman. The promised one cannot be a fallen human being. He has to be a pure, holy, righteous, one who has never sinned in word, thought, or deed, to be fitted for a Savior. The promised one can't be a fallen human being. And the fact that the promised Messiah is called the seed of the woman, 
implies that he will not have an earthly father. He will not be from the seed of man. In other words, he will not partake of the fallen nature of Adam. He will come into the world by means of a woman, not as the result of a seed of a man. And the only way this could happen is if he's virgin born. So the Lord spared Adam, not only because he's merciful, but to save a people and to destroy the devil. Okay? So all of the Old Testament is Christotelic. Christ is the great goal of all the characters, all the offices, all the promises. Everything is fulfilled in Christ. So all we know about Adam and all we know about Joseph is vitally connected to the eternal purpose of God in Christ to save a people from every nation, every kindred, every generation, and every culture through the promised seed of Abraham, who is called the Messiah. And that can't happen unless Joseph is spared. Listen to this. Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ, when she was told that she would give birth to the Messiah, this is Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. What? Mary says she needs a Savior. Who needs a Savior? A sinner. The fact that Mary says she needs a Savior gives the lie to the Roman church teaching of the Immaculate Conception. How many of you know what basically, generally speaking, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is? How many of you know that? Many people think it has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Immaculate Conception means that Mary herself was free from sin. And that's why many Roman Catholics pray the rosary. Mary, Mother of God, save us sinners. They go to the priest and say, I've sinned. He said, go say 39 Hail Marys. Mary can't save anybody. She said herself she needed a Savior. Listen to this now. Later in her prayer of praise in Luke chapter 1, she says in verse 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. What does that phrase, and to his seed, mean? The seed of Abraham is not exclusively the Jewish seed or the Christian seed. The seed of Abraham is the Messiah. He's the seed of Abraham. According to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, the seed of Abraham the seed to whom the promises were made, the seed in whom and through whom all the promises are fulfilled is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And if we through faith are vitally connected to the seed of Abraham, which is Christ, we become the qualified recipients of the promises made to Abraham. Listen to this passage, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. So we are in the seed of Adam because we were all genetically in Adam, expressed in evidence by natural birth. But to be in the seed of Christ, we must be in Christ by the new birth, expressed in evidence through faith. 
And so the birth of the Messiah is directly related to the sparing of Joseph. In other words, our very salvation hangs upon the fate of Joseph. And this is, at least in part, a reason why the Lord determined to spare Joseph. Because again, through sparing Joseph, he will spare Israel. Through sparing Israel, he will fulfill the promises made to Abraham, whence promises eventuate in Jesus as Messiah. Again, Joseph has lived a charmed life. He's been spared from death at the hand of his brothers, spared from death at the hand of Potiphar, spared from death at the hand of Pharaoh. And it's important to, uh, to understand that Joseph was spared not because he was a good man. He was a good man compared to other men, but he was not spared because he was a good man. He is not blessed because he's good, but because the Lord is good. He's not blessed because of who he is, but because of who the Lord is and what he has promised. So don't ever get away from this. Joseph is spared because of Christ. And if you're here today, you've been spared. And you're spared because of Christ. You're spared because of Christ. When we pray, we pray what? In Jesus' name. And we pray what? For Christ's sake. Over the years, I've given you many old stories. Some of them I've picked up. Some of them I knew personally. Old Ralph Barnard, the old evangelist, never pastored a church, just preached tent revival sometimes for three weeks, was in a church one time preaching. And he said about halfway back, he said the church was packed with people about halfway back. He said there was a young woman who was gripping the pew so hard her knuckles were white. When he talked about the Lord Jesus Christ, he could tell she didn't want to hear it. And so when the service was over, he went directly back to her. And he said, my young friend, why don't you come to Jesus? I don't want to hear it. Why don't you bow to the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't want to hear it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. She said, for Christ's sake, leave me alone. He said, all right. He said, for Christ's sake, I'll leave you alone. She left there that night and was killed in an automobile wreck before she got home. Went out into eternity. To meet God without an intercessor, without a Savior, without a Messiah, without a Christ, without a substitute. Let me tell you what moves the God of heaven for Christ's sake. When you pray, you need to pray for the sake of Christ. That if he hears you, it's going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to bless him. It's going to exalt him. It's for, it's for Christ's sake. He spared Adam for Christ's sake. He spared Joseph for Christ's sake. He spared me for Christ's sake. And if you're spared, he spared you for Christ's sake. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's stand together. We've got a world out there. They are religious. I'm convinced of it. 
but they're lost. We've got a world that's being entertained on the way to eternity. I know God has some people other than here at Grace Church. I know that. But I believe this, my friends. I believe that all of this scene that we're seeing today, something is wrong because everybody says, I believed in Jesus, but they're still living the way they've always lived. There's no repentance. Repentance is the missing note. They want to hang on to everything they've been hanging on to, keep doing everything they want to be doing. You know, when my wife Lynn got under conviction, and we went out to see the pastor, or rather the pastor came over to our house, we talked to him a couple of times, Lynn picked him a big chicken dinner, a couple of chickens, I think. He's a little guy, but boy, he could eat. And he turned to me and he said, Mr. Sasser, I was just, I don't know why he called me Mr. Sasser. He was nine years older than I was, and I was about 21, 22 years old. He said, are you saved? I said, well, I've been baptized. He said, well, that's not what I asked you. <laughs> Lynn spoke up and said, he's not saved. <laughs> he said, I'm not saved either, and if I'm not saved, he's not saved. And he said very wisely, well, if you have that much light and you don't care, then you're in a, a lot of trouble. And this is what Lynn said. I don't mind being saved, but I am not going to change one thing in my life. You know, that's what we have today. We have a church full of people, millions of people in the United States, and they say they're saved. But nothing's changing. Looks like to me we're getting worse. Am I crazy? It looks like to me that culture and everything going down. I don't see the world becoming more godly and more righteous. I see them becoming more wicked. I see the scripture being fulfilled as it was in the days of Noah, as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. So shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. My friend, you can't hold on. You can't, like, like, like uh, Doc Stone's old grandfather used to say, he said, you can't pet the devil. You can't pet the devil. If we turn to Christ, we've got to be turning away. Yes, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle. Jesus said it would be a struggle. Strive, he said, that word comes from a word that means to agonize, to enter in at the straight gate. For many I say unto you shall seek to enter in and shall not be able. What's your soul worth? If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what shall it profit you? I want to know the Lord. I don't want to be deceived. I want to know him. And I want you to know him. You hang on to him. And you remember when you read this book, it's a hymn book. It's about him. You might not remember hermeneutic. You might not remember Christotelic and Christocentric, but you remember this. Look for him. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the darling of heaven, and we profess that he's our darling that he's the one who came into the world and died on the cross and suffered all of the agony even before the cross. Nails driven into his hands and into his feet. 
crown of thorns pressed upon his brow until the blood ran down. A sword pierced his side. All for hell-deserving sinners like us. Father, we pray that you'll help us to often remember that, that we might remember that when we go through the little things we're going through in this world, they're nothing compared to what our Lord suffered for us. Surely, we can deny ourselves a few things for his sake. I pray that you'll bless us and that you'll strengthen us and you'll help us. And as the world grows darker, we'll grow stronger. That as the world turns away from thee, O Father, that we might more strongly turn to thee. We pray that you'll help us, fill us with your spirit. Deliver us from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Give us strength that we might be willing to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I can't go there. I won't do this because the Lord Jesus Christ forbids me to do it. He loved me and I love him and I don't want to disappoint him. Have mercy upon this generation. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Let's sing our song and then I'll let you go. Under the blood of Jesus, safe in the shed. keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord bless your rising up and your sitting down, your going out and your coming in. May he bless you in all that you do and make you as the tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaves shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his sake, for his honor, and for his glory. Amen. And you're dismissed. Thank you.